Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. This week on the Nerdcast, the White House is weighing all sorts of different policy proposals, new cuts to corporate taxes, payroll taxes, among other measures, and to try and cushion the U.S. economy ahead of their worst fear heading into 2020, uh, a recession that could damage Trump's re-election hopes. Plus, we're going to go inside President Trump's feud with one of his closest friends, or we should say former closest friends, and just how that fits into his administration's freewheeling policymaking. As always, we're taping this on Thursday. Today, that's August 22nd, so it's all up to date as of then. So in public, President Donald Trump and his administration are always talking about how great the economy is. This is one of their big, big selling points in general, also heading into re-election. But uh, Politico White House reporter Nancy Cook, who's with us this week, found out some new information about what his administration is saying about the economy behind the scenes. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So you, you had a big story uh, this week that I got behind the scenes with the White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, uh, talking to Republican donors and sounding a different note than we're used to hearing about the economy. Absolutely. So um, I would just say broadly, White House aides are very worried about an economic downturn. Um, and, and that's sort of, you know, I talked to a bunch of people this week for the story. And, you know, while Trump is tweeting out very positive things, I think they are quite stressed out about this. Um, and the campaign is as well heading into election. But one thing that I found very telling was the acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, was in Wyoming earlier this week, and he was speaking to a group of about 50 very high-end donors at a private home in Jackson, Wyoming, along with Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. And he was asked about the economy. You know, donors are wealthy people. They want to know what administration people think of the economy. And he said something very telling. He basically said, you know, the economy is doing fine now. The fundamentals look good. But if there was a recession, it would be moderate and short. And that was sort of one of the first indications um, that the administration is sort of um, – you know, publicly admitting the possibility of a recession and then also trying to couch it as something that wouldn't be that bad. I mean, there's really, you know, moderate and short recession is sort of an oxymoron. You know, recession means that you have sort of two um, quarters of contraction. And so, you know, even that is almost, uh, you know, half a year. It's just funny that there's this kind of funny thing among like, political professionals uh, about not even saying the word recessions, like the, the R word, right? And the uh, so it's, it's always interesting to hear what happens behind the scenes when, when people are going through these talks. But meanwhile, as you said, President Trump in public uh, is having none of this, right? He, I mean, he just he just tweeted this morning, the economy is doing really well and then putting some pressure on the Federal Reserve. And he said the Federal Reserve can easily make it record setting. And so, you know, kind of trying to put pressure on one of the levers of the economy here. But there was a really interesting line in your story, Nancy, about about some of the thinking behind this. And there is thinking behind it. You had a White House advisor saying people don't vote on numbers. They vote on whether they feel good. And the president understands that. He is selling the feeling. And it feels like Trump is almost trying to 
kind of guard against a potential economic downturn by basically sowing sowing the seeds to like say that it doesn't count or it's not actually happening. Exactly. I mean, I feel like Trump at this point views this as a messaging war. And so it's something where, you know, despite these emerging data points that show us that there is sort of an economic slowdown happening, there was some volatility in the bond market last week. Um, you know, there were some revisions to the job numbers that showed that the last few months of job growth weren't as good as we originally thought. You know, the president is basically doubling down on this idea that the economy is great because he and his aides really understand that that is his best message heading into 2020. And what they're concerned about is so many suburban voters um, and voters basically say, you know, oh, we're willing to overlook potentially racist comments or incendiary remarks because the economy is good. And that justification for supporting Trump really goes away if the economy tanks. And they are very, very well aware of that. And so that's why I think Trump is sort of keeping insisting on Twitter in his gaggles with reporters, um, you know, sort of the Fox News propaganda machine. They are all insisting that everything is great and there's no troubled signs on the horizon. But what is so interesting to me is that White House aides behind the scenes are freaking out a little bit. You know, they're thinking about things that they could do, policy levers that they could pull to boost the economy. There was some discussion um, last week in the beginning of this week about potentially, uh, you know, more tax cuts. But the thing is, is that they don't have that many policy policy levers left at this point. Basically, what they could do is ask the Federal Reserve to keep cutting interest rates, which is why we see Trump putting so much pressure on Jay Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve. But the other thing they could do is end this trade standoff with China, which really a lot of business groups think is very self-inflicted at this point. Um, and Trump doesn't really want to do that. But I think that there's more and more pressure from business groups and heading into the G7 this week in France, where he's going to be meeting with world leaders and sort of talking about trade and global um economics, there's more and more pressure on this idea that he has that we have to be tough on China and these tariffs, because that's really what is causing some of the slowdown in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so meanwhile, as as the administration is thinking through ways, maybe apart from rethinking the tariffs to to try and keep the economy moving, and Trump is is making the argument that everything, at least for now, is fine, we're also seeing kind of on the sides of all this the administration and Trump in particular, basically setting up the beginning of an argument about who he's going to blame Absolutely. if the economy does take a downturn. Absolutely. And I think that that is part of his idea that that the whole thing on the economy is just winning the messaging war on it. Forget the actual numbers. And so, you know, this week we saw him and uh, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich blame the media for the uh, potential economic slowdown, saying that this was something that the media had, um, you know, cooked up. Trump has blamed Democrats. And then Trump has this ongoing obsession with the Federal Reserve Board Chair uh, Jay Powell, who was um, Secretary Treasury Secretary Mnuchin really pushed Trump to pick him. And I think Trump has very much regretted it um, ever since then. And he has really tried to make uh, Jay Powell a scapegoat. But I was talking to a former senior administration official yesterday who was like, I just don't think that's going to work. You know, does like your mom in Wisconsin care who Jay Powell is if she loses her job? I don't, you know, so I think that he's really setting up the Fed chair to take the blame if the economy goes south. I'm just not sure that like the Federal Reserve and what they do and who runs it resonates with a huge swath of the American public. Yeah, I think that makes sense. One thing I, I was I was uh, having this little like glimmer of of a political science class I took in 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 college many years ago about like how how voters 
uh, digest information about the economy. And I think there was some research at some point about uh, that it, it's the the way the economy affects voters is almost less about their how it how their own pocketbooks are doing and their perceptions of how everyone is doing. You know how their neighbors are doing, how their town is doing. You know, I wonder how something like that would combine with Trump going out and saying, actually, everything's fine if things started to started to turn down or, uh, you know, the administration finding a convenient scapegoat like that and just just how that would affect broader voter attitudes. I mean, we've seen time and time again that it's really tough to be an incumbent president or even just the incumbent president's party when the economy is is having trouble. But, uh, you know, obviously we're in a very different uh, media in- environment than we've ever been before as well. But I think you're right. I think that so much of the economics um, is based on people's perception. And right now we haven't really seen like a hit, let's say, to consumer spending. We aren't seeing people who are, are stopping buying cars or houses. You know, we haven't seen those slowdowns. It's the preliminary indicators right, right. that we're seeing at this point. But I think that that is why Trump is doubling down on this very upbeat, happy talk message about the economy, because part of it is like you don't want people to start to get worried and then they don't buy a new refrigerator or, you know, they don't uh, take a vacation, um, you know, or they don't buy an expensive new car. You want people to keep doing those things. And we haven't really seen the slowdown in consumer spending. We've just seen the slowdown, let's say, in businesses that may not want to invest money because they're not sure what's going to happen with the trade war. Um, But we haven't seen it on the consumer side. And I think that that's what Trump is trying to prevent. And some of the, some of this, the effect we're seeing is just the the effects of the the big tax cut that that Trump and and congressional Republicans passed in in 2017, kind of like rolling to an end at this point, right? That 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 was a, a supposed to be like a big boost for business investment and and things of that nature that maybe kind of ballooned a little bit, got got through 2018, 2019, but now we're starting to see just the the air. Yeah, that bill, that bill passed in December 2017. So mm-hmm. that was a while ago now. And, you know, it's worked its way through the economy. And I think that, you know, it did really help corporations. It did help wealthy individuals disproportionately. But sort of that stimulus, that one-time economic boost is over now. And that's why I think the White House was floating these trial balloons about the tax cuts, which honestly are really just sort of talking points to show that they're doing something. There is no way that Congress right now is going to pass another tax cut. Tax bills originate in the House. Uh, The House is controlled by Democrats. Democrats are not going to go along with that. But I think that the White House really wanted to show that they were doing something. And so there was this talk of a potential payroll tax cut or another corporate tax cut. Um, and that was, you know, the White House wanting to show, hey, we're, we're looking at stuff. But meanwhile, as I talk to people, they're both fearful inside the White House, but there's also like no coherent strategy policy wise on actually how to deal with it if there is a real downturn. Got it. Well, Nancy, thanks so much for coming on Nerdcast to talk, talk to us about it this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Nerdcast will be right back after a short message. Check out The Nation magazine's new podcast, Next Left, hosted by national affairs correspondent John Nichols. From the grassroots to the ballot box, we are witnessing an explosion of progressive political energy. New candidates are running for offices high and low, and they're winning. These insurgent politicians let us into their lives, tell us their stories, and explain how they plan to change our country for the better. These are people reshaping our politics by bringing bold, progressive policies to their cities, counties, and states, and to D.C. Join John Nichols every Tuesday for a new one-on-one interview like no other. And download the Next Left podcast from The Nation magazine or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back, listeners. Next up this week, we've got another Politico White House reporter, Daniel Littman, who's joining us for the first time ever on Nerdcast. Hi, Daniel. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So, Daniel, you wrote a piece that got a ton of attention this week about President Trump and one of his closest friends, or should I say closest former friends. Frenemies. Uh, yeah. So Tom Barrack and Donald Trump have been friends and confidants for more than three decades. Uh, they're, they're so close, for instance, that Barrack comforted Trump during the funeral of his father, Fred. He was Trump's inauguration chairman, and that actually gets to the root of the rift here. So, Daniel, you reported that the, this relationship is fractured so badly that the two no longer speak. So what, what happened? So they used to speak uh, multiple times a day where Trump would call Barrick for advice and for counsel and just to catch up as friends. Uh, and what happened was there's been a series of stories in places like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times about how Barrick is under investigation for the inaugural committee. Uh, and there were there was tons of money raised. It was a record $107 million. And so uh, and they didn't expect to win. And so it's not like they were planning for the you know verification to make sure that there there were no foreign dollars spent. Uh, and it's a type of committee where you know this type of stuff. In a regular campaign, there's a set limit of how much money you can usually donate. With the inaugural, if I wanted to give a million dollars, I could. And so people were spending tons of money to buy access to Trump because they were worried that they could be on the receiving end of a tweet and of a trade policy that would go south for their uh, company or industry. And so the inauguration became this huge influence, or at least allegedly, a huge influence peddling operation. And and, and there's, there's reportedly federal investigations circling around that. Yeah. So the uh, usually we think about the Southern District of New York as investigating Trump world. But there is also uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, the Eastern District of New York, the EDNY. Uh, and they have been doing the most amount of work uh, looking at the inauguration, whether there were foreigners who were giving money to straw donors in America to pass along to the inauguration. And so uh, this could be, you know, the Qataris or the Saudis, uh, you know, members of uh, influence, you know, who are trying to influence uh, Trump uh, and get, uh, you know, there was also foreign policy to think about. And so uh, Barrick has had many ties to Middle Eastern leaders over the years. He's done tons of business. Uh, and he was also pursuing this nuclear deal where he was trying to get a cut of a the sale of Westinghouse, which makes nuclear plants. And, and he was also lobbying the Trump administration at the same time the in the early days to uh, tell to give them licenses to Saudi Arabia so they could share nuclear technology and he wasn't he didn't register under the Foreign Agent Registration Act which is the same statute that got Michael Flynn uh, and Paul Manafort uh, and others in Trump world uh, to you know they had to plead guilty to those types of charges you know it's it's interesting just thinking through the ramifications of this and I was thinking it's like okay like tr Trump has has you know cut off a friend why should we care but like that we've had so many uh, administration officials campaign officials come under investigation some of them uh, have gone to jail uh, or or you know or could be sentenced <laughs> to to go to jail in the future and then but as you mentioned before Barrick is part of this like I don't know what the term is, a kitchen cabinet, I guess, of just these these friends and and outside world advisors who Trump as president has continued to call up, as you said, in the past, sometimes nu numerous times in a day to get uh, feedback and, and ideas about you know, what, what sort of thing he could be doing with the vast power of the federal government. And and so the. I, I think that that kind of sets up the stakes very clearly then for, for when something like this evaporates and, and someone kind of gets ejected from that orbit. And I also talked to uh, one person close to the president that said that uh, 
Barrick used to tell things to Trump that he didn't want to hear. And so if you've known a person for 30 years, you're more willing to uh, say what's actually on your mind instead of saying, oh, Mr. President, you're doing a great job. Everything is <laughs> going well. Uh, the economy is booming thanks to your amazing leadership. Uh, and Barrick has also uh, stood out uh, among Trump world people for sometimes criticizing the president in the media. So he told the Washington Post that Trump was better than this when talking about the uh, Muslim ban uh, and also our efforts at the border. Uh, and Barrick is Lebanese-American. Uh, he has a pretty interesting story of he's now a, a billionaire. He doesn't, he doesn't have tens of billions of dollars, but he I, I was checking the, the rankings, and I think he's at least $1 billion. <laughs> uh, and the uh, he is a real estate uh, venture capitalist, uh, and he first met Trump uh, when they when he helped sell the Plaza Hotel in New York to then businessman Donald Trump uh, in the 80s, uh, and that led them to strike this friendship. And they're similar ages, and so they've gone through divorces and you know the birth of kids together. So they've kind of uh, they're kind of tight buddies until recently when uh, Trump wanted to distance himself because of these investigations. Uh, you've you've illustrated how close this relationship with with Barrick was and the kind of influence he's he's brought to bear in the past. He's he's on the outs now. We've got a lot of people, you know, va- various legal troubles that have uh, pursued uh, a lot of people in the administration, whether through the the uh, Mueller investigation or, or other things. Who in Trump's orbit does he trust fully that he would just never never eject from it for any reason? So I think people, if anyone like. Uh, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump. So the family. Family. Yeah. He thinks they can only trust his family and that everyone else is just trying to profit off him uh, or, you know, that those people are not going to be with him on on his side forever. Uh, And so but even he has criticized his own family members in front of them and in front of other people, sometimes suggesting, why don't you know, Washington is such a tough place. Why don't you move back to New York? He told Jared Ivanka a couple times. And so uh, and they haven't. Everyone expected them. You know, at at every school year, people are wondering are they going to come back? Or, but they love uh, being in the mix. Uh, they think that they're doing uh, a good job on their issues. Uh, in terms of other people, Kellyanne Conway seems to be a survivor. Stephen Miller, uh, people who really believe in Trump, or at least uh, they are, do everything in their in their power to stay on his good side. Mm-hmm. And Kellyanne's case, uh, George Conway, her husband, has been a kind of a headache uh, because he's always criticizing the president. Uh, those people are kind of the people who are going to be left standing. Uh, Trump turns on many other people if they remotely start to criticize him, like we saw Anthony Scaramucci recently. You know, it's 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 interesting that you bring up the Trump criticizing Barrick and others as as trying to trying to make a buck off him. He thinks, people, but uh, as as we've seen in his interactions, he's more than happy while these people are close to him, while they're his friends, to allow them to make a buck off him. And that seems to be just a you know he he views as, seems to view as part of the friendship. And but once it goes by the wayside, it becomes a point of complaint. And there's there's a quote from our story. Uh, I think it's from a senior administration official saying. Uh, Trump never got any of that money that Barrick was raising, the $107 million. And then we thought about it more. uh, And actually, Trump made more than $1.5 million uh, to the Trump hotel that they were spending money on. And so if you gave to the inauguration, 
maybe if you know 1.5 million out of 107 million dollars that's 1% of your money is going to uh Trump uh, and so he's profiting he profited off the inauguration and so uh we had to kind of add uh, a a line after that quote saying well actually he did profit off this oh and daniel before we let you go i have to bring this up just because it's such an interesting uh story from the point of view of audio, but you had another story recently about basically the defining imagery of the Trump presidency. And it's it's him... No, he wasn't. He wasn't happy with Standing the on the lawn of the White House with Marine One flapping or whirring or whatever you want to call it in the background and this awful whine and him shouting over it. Yes. So Stephen Colbert dubbed it Chopper Talk. Uh, and so we put that in the headline of our story. Uh, he loves to mix it up with the media uh, and journalists uh, before he's about to board Marine One. Uh, and he will pontificate on every subject under the sun. But it's also very – I talked to a lot of the reporters who cover uh, the White House, and it's very hard uh, for them to get uh, substantive questions in. And you can't really do a follow-up. He just goes to the next person. You're competing with a helicopter, Jack. Uh, and so he's done uh, – around 80 of these uh, in the last two and a half years, whereas President Obama only did three of these. And that's according to Mark Noller, who keeps the statistics on this. Obama, I talked to people around him, and he liked to do the formal, the formality with the the press lectern, conference, the, the lectern, podium. The, yeah. uh, and Trump, uh, they don't really have daily briefings anymore. They haven't had that in, I think, five months under Stephanie Grisham, uh, who there was some talk, maybe they would bring them back. But no, this is Trump's preferred way of kind of shouting at the press. He loves seeing them uh, mix it up and it's they, he sometimes can leave them waiting in you know 80 degree heat for half an hour uh, as he uh, finishes his business uh, to talk to them. But they, you also get access, and so that's the case that Trump's defenders were making that uh, he uh, you know he's done more of these uh, and he he talks to the press on a regular basis and so that they can get their uh, take. But also he can uh, yeah, I've talked to people uh, around Trump. And they said they on certain days they would tell him, maybe this is not a good idea, day to engage. We don't want to give more fuel to a certain story, and he would engage anyway. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us to, to talk through your story. Thanks for having me, Scott. And as always, a big thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. Our producer for this episode is Jenny Ament. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. I think think they're really full of shit, political strategists. Many of them are. What they tell journalists. Who do you think is more full of shit, political strategists or economists? I actually feel like that's a, it's a toss up. That is a tough one. It's a toss up.